Good morning. Today's scripture reading has actually been updated from what you currently see in your program. We will be reading from Genesis 3, 1 through 9 in the NIV. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? We're now in week four of this series we've been in called The Basics, where we're looking at the, the basic beliefs, the foundational building blocks of the Christian faith. So in week one, we looked at God, uh, the creator, the creation of the idea, made an argument for the idea that, that the world was made by somebody. In week two, we looked at the Bible, Scripture, making the argument that the Bible is not just a human book, but it was a book written by God, a supernatural book. Last week we turned toward Jesus and we looked at the resurrection and we said that this week we're going to look at the crucifixion, which we are. Uh, but to, to do that, we're going to, do, we're going to talk very little about the crucifixion itself, the death of Christ itself. That's going to be at the very end. Uh, I realize there's just so much background work that has to be done first to understand this question of why. Why did Jesus have to die? Because uh, this is how it differs from the resurrection. You know, uh, last week with the resurrection, it was this factual question of whether he rose from the dead or not. He, we were arguing that he rose from the dead. Well, nobody doubts that Jesus died. Nobody doubts that there was a crucifixion. The question is why? What, what does it mean? What's the point of it? What's the significance of it? And as I was thinking about that question this week, it's, it's the most written about question in human history. And so there, there are a lot of different answers given in the Bible itself and a lot of different answers given in the, in the history of theology. So it's hard to, to boil it down. But if I had to boil it down, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? What was the point of him dying? I, what I would say is, and this is the thesis this morning, I would say that Jesus died to reconnect us to the love of God. So let me say that again, because that's the thesis. That's the whole point this morning. Jesus died on the cross to reconnect us to the love of God. Now that thesis, at least for me, and, and probably for you if you're, if you're not familiar with this, and as I was trying to revisit it, even for me, that thesis raises five questions. Five, five, because there's a lot of terms in that. You know, there's, Jesus died to reconnect us to the love of God. What does that mean? It raises five questions in my mind, and the five questions are this, are these, rather. Uh, number one, what is love? Number two, what is the love of God? Number three, why should I care whether I'm 
connected to it or not? Number four, how did I become disconnected from it? And then number five, how does Jesus' death reconnect me to it? I'm going to give you those again because it's kind of, kind of long. Uh, so first question is, again, thesis, Jesus died to reconnect us to the love of God. Five questions. Number one, what is love? Number two, what's the love of God? Number three, why should I care whether I'm connected to it? Number four, how did I become disconnected from it? And then number five, how does Jesus' death reconnect me to it? Those are going to be five sections this morning of uh, wildly disparate lengths. Some are going to be really short, and some are going to be really long, so, so let's start them. First, first question, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Um, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't help myself. Um, no, what, what is it? Uh, nothing groundbreaking or earth-shattering in this first section, but I do want to just make sure we're all on the same page. So let me read you the dictionary definition or some synonyms. It says, love is an intense feeling of deep affection, fondness, tenderness, warmth, intimacy, attachment, endearment, devotion, adoration, passion, enthusiasm, loyal and benevolent concern for the good of another, or then there's this part, a great interest and pleasure in something. Now, again, you all knew that. We all kind of know what the word love means, but I want to clarify it just because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, uh, love is not a feeling. Well, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Love is clearly a feeling. I mean, read the dictionary. Love is clearly a feeling. It's these very strong feelings, and sure, it can manifest itself in actions. But if you had those actions without the feeling, you, you wouldn't call it love. It's this, this attachment, this attachment, this devotion, this loyalty, this, this pleasure in. Uh, the, the word love, Old English word, Old English obviously comes from uh, German, and the, the same German root gives us love and joy and praise. All those words come from the same root. You take joy in someone. You love them. And we know this. We know what it's like from, from experience uh, to be the, the lover or the beloved, you know, to be the object of love or the one doing the loving. So in a good marriage, uh, obviously, it's ideally both ways. You know, you're the, the lover and the beloved at the same time. With your kids, uh, you're, you're way more the lover than the beloved. You know, they're the beloved. Uh, they love you to a, a certain extent, but not that, that, that attachment that you feel toward them, that loyalty that you feel toward them, willingness to do anything for them, it's a little bit more one way than it is in a marriage. Anyway, again, nothing earth-shattering there. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. That's what love is, at least for our, our purposes this morning. That's the definition we're going to be using. That's first. What is love? Number two, secondly, second question that the thesis raises is, What's the love of God? What is the love of God? And the answer that the Bible gives to that question, what's the love of God, is that the love of God is, and you saw this in the passage uh, that we read this morning, Genesis 3, that the love of God is the source of, the foundation of, everything you see. It's the reason that any of us exist. And in the passage, you see God uh, looking for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day at sunset to walk with them, to talk with them, just because he wants to be with them. And what Scripture says, not just in that passage, but all throughout the Bible, is that the whole reason that God created at all, his motive, God has motives, he's a person. What's his motive for, for creating? He didn't have to create. 
The whole reason he created at all, the reason any of us are here, is he made us to love us. That was the point. All that stuff that we were just talking about, the definition of love, the, the attachment, the enthusiasm, the passion, the loyalty, he made us to love us and for us to love him. In return, he created us to have this loving parent-child relationship with us. That's the point. That's why he did it. That's what Genesis says. You say, well, it's just a story. It's just a, a myth. You know, that's what the Bible says, but, but how do we know that's true? Two ways, two pieces of evidence for the truth of this so-called myth from Genesis 3 about this idea that God created the world just so he could love us. The first is, and this kind of goes back to the, but we're going to, both of these, by the way, are going to be repeating things we've said earlier in this series. The first way you can kind of look at the evidence for, for the truth of the Genesis story is by the longevity of the myth itself and the originality of the myth itself. So you've got this story about, about uh, God making the world just so he could love us. And people say, oh, well, I'm educated, and so I know that that story is, is just made up. The funny thing about that is, the irony there, is if you were educated about this particular area, you would know that this isn't the sort of story that ancient people made up. We've talked before about how creation myths, origin stories, are a dime a dozen. Every ancient culture had one. None of them are anything like this. They are all incredibly violent, and the gods are always mean. Always, without exception. So the Babylonian creation myth, for example, you got, how did the world get here? Well, according to the Babylonians, you got one god who has a battle with another god, and he kills her, and he rips her corpse in half, and he uses one half of her corpse as the raw material for the earth, and the other half of her corpse as the raw material for the sky. Then he goes, tracks down her, her husband, kills him, and uses the blood of that god to fashion for himself these slaves called human beings. That's what they all sound like. And then you have this story out of nowhere where there's only one God. Nobody, no historian can explain where monotheism comes from. It, it, nobody has any idea. It just explodes onto the scene of history with no precedent, no analog. You have a story with one God, and he's loving. And he creates human beings just so he can love them. And then here we are, thousands of years later, all of those other creation myths nobody cares about. You didn't even know that Babylonian creation myth. All those other thousands of stories have been forgotten. And here we are with this story from Genesis, which was just from some little tribe in Israel, just one of the other creation myths, and we all still take it seriously. Half the globe believes in it. That's the first piece of evidence for the truth of the Genesis account, is the originality and the longevity of the myth itself. But the second piece of evidence is from experience about you know, this, this story that, that God is love and God creates the world out of love. Well, you know, where's the proof for that? It, and this goes back to what we talked about in week one, which is the primacy of love in our own experience. The primacy of love. Because love is uh, what anybody would acknowledge. Love is the only point of life. It's the only thing that makes life worth living, is being loved and loving somebody else. That's, that's the only meaning. Their life is completely meaningless without Love, and so we have that as a fact. We know that in our experience. And we have to have some theory to explain it, some, some way of, of trying to explain why that would be, why love would be so important. And so what we did in week one, and I want to go back to this just because I think it's such a big deal, and I think this is such a winnable argument. You know, I'm tired of, of acting like this is a close call because it's not. 
We all have love as primary in our experience. And you've got two stories explaining why that would be. You've got the story of the Bible, which if the Bible is true, of course love is primary in our experience. Love was primary. Love is everything. God created the universe in love, and so love is everything for us. The other story, the naturalistic story, you have to explain love somehow, and let's just be clear. Let's be very clear about what the claim actually is. So the claim is that love is completely an illusion. There is no such thing as love. All there is is chemicals. There's chemicals in your brain. There's dopamine, there's serotonin, there's oxytocin, there's endorphins. That's what there is. How did we get those? Well, not all humans had them. Some humans got them by chance, by dumb luck, by a genetic mutation. Some humans were born with these weird chemicals, just, just like wrong. It wasn't supposed to be this way. These chemicals where, so you have a sexual partner, and normally, you know, you have sex, and that's it. And your sexual desire is fulfilled, and you move on to the next sexual partner. And these messed up, tweaked humans would have sex, and then they, they, their brains would somehow produce oxytocin, and dopamine, and serotonin, endorphins, and then they want to bond and attach. Well, natural selection, according to the story, favored these people. Because then, instead of just having offspring, you had families. You had people that would bond together. It helped the kids survive better. If you had this sort of bonding uh, chemical reaction with friendships, you could form groups. That would help you defend yourself against other warring humans. And over time, uh, evolution selects for this trait so that now we all have it. Now we all have this freak mutation where your, your brain is flooded with these chemicals when you attach it to you know, a sexual partner, or the other thing, you know, you had, so you have some moms, some moms that just by chance, just by chance, when they would give birth, their brain would be flooded with dopamine and oxytocin, just by chance, mutation. And what they're right about is that that's not true across the animal kingdom. They're right about that. So you, know, you have uh, the, the cuckoo, <laughs> the cuckoo is my favorite. The cuckoo will, will lay an egg and then go drop the egg in some other cuckoo mom's nest to try to get the other mom to raise it. Some of you are thinking, that is brilliant. I'm going to try that. And the point is, I don't want to take care of this kid. Like, this is, this is terrible. Or uh, there's a variety of seal where the, the mom will nurse the seal for like a few days and then just leave it. And it's not like the seal is like, you know, ready for this. So the seal can't swim yet. It can't hunt. It's stuck on the ice for six weeks without food. It drops its body weight by 50%. It almost dies. The predators can come and get it. The, the, the death rate within the first six weeks for these seals is like 30%, 40%. And then finally, it can you know, fend for itself. Point is, not all moms are loving. You know, not all moms have this. And according to the evolutionary story, you know, human moms just by chance developed this trait, and that's why they bond with their children. And, you know, I said this is a winnable argument. It's just absurd. It's just, it's so absurd. And you have such smart people using such big words saying this. I don't care how many degrees they have. It's crazy. And we all know it's crazy. It makes no sense at all. What makes perfect sense is this story that people have believed for thousands of years about a God who created everything out of love. And if that's true, then it would make sense why we have these strong feelings, this strong 
attachment to one another. It would make sense why love is the only point of life because love has always been the only point of life. Evolution says that, that the point of love is life. So love is just in the service of life. Love is to propagate survival. And the Bible has always said the opposite. No, the point of life is love. The only reason God created anything at all was for the sake of love. So that's the, the second thing. What is the love of God? It's the reason for everything. It's the source of everything. It's the point of everything. Source of all life. Second question. Third question this morning is, why should I care if I'm disconnected from the love of God? Why should I care if I'm disconnected from the love of God? And these all build on one another, so you, know, you kind of have to accept the, the second one to make sense of the third one. If you don't buy the second one, then just for the sake of argument, go with it for a minute. If it's true that God's love is the source of all life, if you're disconnected from it, that's a problem. What, what, Bible call, what the Bible calls the separation from God's love is it calls it death. People think of that as like physical death. It's not what it means. It means God's love is life. If you're unplugged from the power source, that's death, and it creates all kinds of problems in your life. And this is really easy to understand, just even on a human level. You know, the biggest principle in psychology, pop psychology and movies, whatever, but it's true across the board, is that if you don't experience the love of your parents, you're really screwed up in all these important ways, and you can, you can compensate for it, and you can still have a successful life, but anybody who's had that experience of feeling disconnected from the love of their parents will tell you that it messes with you. So if that's true on a human level, if being disconnected from the love of your human parents screws you up like that, well, how much more so to be disconnected from the love of your creator, which is the source of all life, it's gonna, it's gonna really screw you up. And that explains some things, you know, if that's true, you know, why should I care? Why should I care that I'm disconnected from God's love? Well, you should care because you have problems, or I'm assuming you have problems. If you, if you don't know you have problems, and you really have problems. Um, we all have problems, and the, the question is, where did they come from? Like, how did this happen? How did I get so screwed up? Why do I do all these things I don't want to do? Why do I feel all these ways I don't want to feel, and then do all these other things I don't want to do to stop feeling the ways I don't want to feel? How did this happen? How did I get so screwed up? And the Bible has a very clean, very elegant answer to that, which is you got unplugged. You got disconnected from the love of your father. And once that's withdrawn, once you don't have his love, once you can't bask in his love anymore, then it's going to screw you up in all sorts of ways. You're going to try to compensate for it in all sorts of ways. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. So that's why you should care. If point two is true about God's love being the source of everything, that's why you should care if you're disconnected from him. Just like being disconnected from the love of your parents screws you up, being disconnected from God's love screws you up, screws all of us up in big ways. It's the third question. The fourth question is, how? How did I become disconnected from God's love? Assuming that you are, you know, I mean, it's so two ways you can know you are disconnected. One is the problems like we just talked about. The other way you can know you're disconnected from God's love is just, do you feel it? Do you walk around feeling God's love all the time? Do you walk around just knowing that you're so loved by your creator and that he made you? Most people don't. So there's the proof that you are disconnected. But how? How did it happen? How did you become, how did we become, how did I become disconnected from the love of God? 
And that's what the passage you heard read this morning tells the story of. I preached on this passage five, six times more than any other passage in the Bible. I preach on it three or four times a year. If you cut me open, you would find Genesis chapter 3. This is like as central as it gets for my thinking. And what it says is the way we got separated from God is through this, this problem called sin. Now, everybody's heard of sin, but I think it's interesting to, to ask, how does sin separate us from the love of God? Because if I gave you that as a prompt for an essay question, you know, I said, um, Christianity asserts that sin separates us from the love of God. Explain that. Describe that. I think the way most people would go about that is they would say, well, what happens is sin is when we do stuff bad, and when we do stuff bad, that makes God mad at us and makes him withdraw his love for us. So that's how sin separates us from the love of God. And again, just like we were talking about earlier, this is a, a case where the, the common thinking is exactly the opposite, exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. Because we think that, that we do something wrong, we screw up, and then God withholds his love and we, we get disconnected from his love. Actually, it, it goes the other way, where we get disconnected from his love first. And then that's what makes us do stuff wrong and, and do things that are screwed up. And you see in the passage, it happens through the influence of this other being, this, this serpent, this snake, the devil. I know it's hard to believe in the devil. We've talked about the devil a lot lately. For some reason, I've, I've found in, in talking to people uh, in New York that they have a way easier time believing in God in a supernatural good being than they do believing in the devil in a supernatural evil being, even though they're both supernatural. So I, I don't totally get that. I just want to acknowledge that I know it's tough for some of you in this room, uh, but the, the universe and your life, and we talked about this a lot in the How to Change series, it all makes a lot more sense once you realize that he's real. And so he comes, and he plants a seed of doubt. It starts with doubt. And he says to Eve, uh, you know, what's with this rule? Uh, you know, you, you, the reason God is making this rule for you is because he knows that, you know, if you do this, you're going to have a better life, essentially. So what's the accusation? It's, it's very important to be uh, precise about the accusation that the serpent is making about God. What he's saying is God doesn't really love you. He's getting, he's getting Eve to doubt God's love because if he did love you, he wouldn't make a rule just to keep you down. He wouldn't make a rule just to, to mess you up. God doesn't love you. That's the first step. There's three steps. He, he gets us to go through this progression of sin. So the first step is doubt. He gets us to doubt God's love, doubt God's goodness. The second step is defy. He gets us to defy one of God's rules, and so that's what, what uh, Adam and Eve do with breaking the rule, eating from the fruit of the tree. And then the third step in the clincher, you know, it's this game, set, match progression where it, he builds on his moves. Uh, the third step is then he, he, so he first gets you to doubt God's love, then he defy, and then third, he gets you to fear God. And the way he does this is by the guilt trip, you know, so he, he says, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And he says, I can't believe you did that. I can't, I can't believe you did that. And he says, now, well, now it's too late. Now you can't go back. Now you can't go back to God because... That's, that's, he told you not to. He told you not to do that. So and who could love you now? God's not going to love you now. God's not going to accept you now. Fear. This week uh, with, uh, at home, I walked into the bathroom one night, and there was one of these uh, big pillows from our couch. It's like a knit pillow that sits on the couch. It was sitting on the floor of the bathroom. And so I went out and said, hey, who, who took the 
pillow from the couch into the bathroom. And uh, everybody says, I don't know, you know, everybody denies culpability. And so I, you know, they're all running around. And so then I go one by one and ask each of them while they're in the midst of whatever activities they're in, you know, did you do this? No, did you? No, no. And uh, Dottie, the two and a half year old, is, I, I knew it wasn't her. You know, the pillow was actually too big for her to drag in there, and she had no, no motive to do it. Um, <laughs> so I was going to let it go, and then I realized, wait a minute, somebody's lying here. So I lined them all up. <laughs> I lined them all up, shoulder to shoulder. And I said, uh, Reese, did you uh, put, pull the pillow into the bathroom? She said, no. I said, Anna, did you pull the pillow into the bathroom? And she said, no. I said, Kate, did you pull the pillow into the bathroom? She said, no. And I had a feeling, and so I doubled down, and I said, Kate, did you pull the, the pillow into the bathroom? And she starts sobbing, you know, starts, just breaks down sobbing. And so I, I pulled her into her room, and I said, why did, you, why did you lie to me? And she was, the first time, she was cool as ice. I mean, just, no, no. Who, who would pull a pillow into a bathroom? <laughs> Dad, whoever did that's really messed up. Um, so I said, uh, Kate, why did, you, why did you lie to me? And she said, well, uh, you know that goo, that like putty goo stuff that, that we have and that we're supposed to only play with at the table? I said, yeah. She's like, well, I was playing with it over at the couch. And then, I, and the pillow's like a loose knit kind of, you know, cover. And then I got it stuck in the pillow and it got, got all over the pillow. And so I brought the pillow to the bathroom because I was going to try to scrub out the goo before you saw because I thought you were going to be really mad at me. And uh, I know everybody's on her side right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you're actually not supposed to be. You're not supposed to be. I mean, we, we can't help it. We can't help it be on her side because she's us, and we feel for ourselves a lot more than we feel for God. And what happens is, so we, we start by doing something that he said not to do, and we think, it'll be fine. It, it'll, it'll work out. So her thinking is, Dad has this rule about the, the goo on the couch. That's a stupid rule. There's no need for that rule. And then, so we do it. And then it, it plays out exactly the way he said it was going to play out the exact reason there was a rule to begin with, that happens. And we say, oh, and we have to deal with it. We've got to figure something out. And so then that's when we hide. We hide. And the irony is, if she had come to me, if she had come to me as soon as it happened and said, Dad, look what happened, yes, she would have gotten in trouble in some very minor way, but it would have not broken the relationship between us. There would have been no breach in the relationship. That was a, a fixable problem. But if she kept on lying to me like that, if I hadn't pinned her down, if I hadn't seen that lie and made her confess, and she gets in the pattern of lying, the relationship is toast. Like, there, there is no relationship anymore because of the hiding. That's what breaks the relationship. And that's how Satan separates us from God. Doubt is goodness. Doubt the wisdom of the rule. What's the point of this rule? Break the rule, and then you're afraid, and you hide. And it's the same thing, you know, again, we can see this in any relationship. It's the same thing in any other relationship. So, you know, we're, we're talking about how do we become separated from the love of God? Well, how does anybody become separated from anybody in terms of a loving relationship? 
this is not a small question. Like, th this is the cause of human suffering above anything else is broken relationships. And the question is, how do relationships break? How do you have somebody that you have a loving bond and then all of a sudden you don't? And it goes like this. This is how it happens. You do something that you're ashamed of and then you hide. You hide. You cover up and you don't want to let anybody see and then it's impossible for there to be love anymore because it's not the real you and it's not the real them. And it all starts, it all starts with the serpent coming and whispering this thought that you would have never thought to think otherwise, which is, maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe he's just making up these rules to keep you down. Maybe he can't be trusted. Back to Kate, and this was just uh, last night. The pillow thing happened last week, but this was just last night. I was putting the girls to bed and so finished singing songs and uh, said a prayer no different than a prayer any other night, just very perfunctory prayer, to be honest. You know, thank you for this, thank you for that, please help this, amen. And usually that's it. There's, that, you know, turn off the lights. I mean, maybe ask for another drink of water or, you know, change my socks or something. But uh, you, there's no comment on the prayer itself, no, no theological discussion. But last night, I, I finished the prayer, and Kate, out of nowhere, she's four years old, she says, Dad, it's so weird. It's so annoying. She said, sometimes these thoughts come into my brain about, like, um, God can't help you, or God is mean, or God is that word I'm not supposed to say. And I said, you mean God is stupid? And she said, yeah. And she said, and they, these thoughts come into my brain, and it even happens when I'm singing songs at church to God. And I just have to whisper in my brain, I have to say, no, no, no. And I'm sitting there knowing I'm going to preach this sermon today, just absolutely speechless. And what that was for me is it was God speaking to me. I have no doubt that that was God speaking to me through my daughter. God speaking directly to me. And what he was telling me is that as much as I believe this story, and I believe it with my whole heart, as real as I think it is, it is so much more real than I could ever believe. This is reality. We think the stuff we can touch and feel is reality. This is what's real. This is what's real. Somebody whispering in your ear, God is mean, and God's not going to help you, and God is stupid. So God's rules are stupid, so you don't need to listen to them, and the slide starts, and then you're afraid, and then you just doubt all the more. That's the fourth thing. According to the Bible, that's how we became separated from the love of God. And it's not just according to the Bible, it's according to all of our experience. We all know what this looks like and what this feels like. That takes us to the fifth and final section, which is how does Jesus' death on the cross, how does the death of Christ on the cross, how does it reconnect us to God's love? Again, and again, that's the thesis from the top is Jesus' death reconnects us to the love of God. How does that happen? And like I alluded to at the beginning, there's so many theories here about how this works, but I, I want to get to the, the main point. So the main point is, by dying for us, he proves to us that the serpent's lie is exactly that. That's a lie. Because the snake says, God doesn't love you, and Jesus is hanging there on the cross saying, well, I do love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't die for you like this. Now, 
the part that we don't have time to get into is the question of, well, uh, why, why did he have to die to save us? You know, because so if a, if a guy jumps off a cliff to prove to this girl that he loves her, well, that's kind of dumb unless there's some reason that he has to jump off a cliff. You know, so what's the reason that Jesus has to die to save us? And there's a lot to that. You know, it has to do with one thing with devil, with buying us back from slavery. The Bible uh, talks about sin as slavery. And so the, the blood of Christ is the ransom price to set us free. It also has to do with cleansing. You know, going back to the, the goo uh, with the, the pillow. Well, in our case, the goo isn't on the pillow. The goo is on us. You know, when we do this stuff, when we, when we break these rules, and we do this stuff that God tells us not to do, and it goes exactly the way he said it was going to go, that's not on some pillow. We're the ones that have the stain on us. You know, think about the, the famous scene from Macbeth where Lady Macbeth uh, kills her husband. She's got blood on her hands, and she's in the bathroom, just like Kate, you know, trying to scrub it out. Out, damn spot. Out, I say. One of the most famous lines in Western literature. And we've all got these spots, but they're not on our hands, and they're not on the pillow. They're on our souls. They're, they're inside. And so one of the things that the blood of Christ does is cleanse us from that, washes us clean. Though your, your skin, sins are as scarlet, I'm going to make you white as snow. Or it talks about clothing us, clothing our nakedness. You see in the passage, Adam and Eve become aware of their nakedness. So those are a couple of, of ways to think about it that the Bible talks about. He's, he, he dies, his blood is the ransom price to buy us back from slavery to Satan, who won us to his side when we gave in or he dies to wash us clean and to clean up this mess that we can't clean up ourselves. But that's not where I want to focus. I don't want to focus on the mechanics of uh, why Jesus had to die on the cross and why Jesus had to shed his blood to save us. I want to focus on the fact that he did it. He did it. And assuming he had to, assuming he had to die to save us, the fact that he did die to save us proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that God does love us. He loves us. If you've got this kid that doubts the love of their parent, my parent never loved me, and then all of a sudden the parent steps in front of a bus to save the kid's life, the parent's lying there dead, and the kid's thinking, well, I guess it was wrong. I guess my parent did love me, and that's what the cross does. So Paul says it in Romans 5. He says, this is what proves the love of God, that he died for us while we were still sinners. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Or Jesus says it in John 15. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. That's why. That's why. To reconnect us to the love of God. And when you see it, it's supposed to flip a switch. It's supposed to be the proof. It's supposed to be the proof that this lie that the serpent was telling you isn't true. There's been a lot of uh, shake-up, a lot of big news in the world of uh, prestigious literary prizes in the last couple of years. So obviously, just recently, uh, Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer. Uh, but then the same type of thing happened with the Nobel Prize last year with Bob Dylan winning the, the Nobel Prize in literature. And uh, so Dylan, you know, who? what are these songs about? The greatest critics of Dylan, greatest students of Dylan, have said that the best way to read him is as a spiritual poet, as a biblical poet, kind of in the, the prophetic mode. You probably remember he had like this really devout phase 
where he was very in your face for a few years where he would just preach at his audiences after the concert and people got really fed up with that. So he decided to start being more subtle and he would just kind of hide it, weave it into the, the songs. And I think an interesting song to look at through this perspective is one of his really late songs. Uh, in 1997, he released this song called uh, Make You Feel My Love, which his version of Even If You Love Bob Dylan is really hard to listen to. But then Adele covered it, and the song was born. You know, it was this absolutely breathtaking song. And it, it's just this strange song for Dylan to write. You know, it's ostensibly this song between two lovers, you know one lover and another, but it, it's just odd for how cynical he is to be talking about this undying human love. And then there's just these lines in the song that, that don't make sense. That I could hold you for a million years, says. Or, or the, the lover says, I, I go hungry, I go black and blue, I go crawling down the avenue to make you feel my love. Who does that sound like? One line says, I go to the ends of the earth for you to make you feel my love. There's reference to the shadows, the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23. There's reference to drying every tear from the book of Revelation. I think the best way to, to read the song, to listen to the song, is as Christ, as God, saying to you. That's the point of the cross. So we're going to close our service today with that song, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to just sit there. We're not even going to sing. I just want you to sit there and just ask yourself this question, what if this is what God is trying to say to me through the cross of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, you know that we're all looking for love. You see the ways we act when we don't get it, the ways we act out. And what Scripture tells us is that you're there all along waiting to offer it to us. We want to repent this morning. We repent for believing the lie of the serpent. We repent of breaking your rules because we thought we knew better and we didn't trust you. We repent, we repent of being afraid of you and of running from you and of hiding from you. And I ask this morning, as we contemplate the cross of Christ, as we look at you dying for us, I ask that you would, in a new way, speak to us and convince us of your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.